The scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 11, in the Pew Bibles it would be page 903. Luke chapter 11, we'll start with verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was dumb. And when the demon had gone out, the dumb man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. But if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when one stronger than he assails him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Last week, the main point was that the kingdom of God has broken into the present time and is, in the coming of Jesus Christ, present. And the second point was that this kingdom of this world, this age, goes on. So that there is a sense in which the kingdom is already here in Jesus Christ, and there's a sense in which it's not yet here, but will come at the consummation, at the last day, at the second coming. And that this period of time in which we live is a mystery. It's called the mystery of the kingdom. And the mystery is that the kingdom has already arrived in two stages it's coming. First, with the coming of Jesus, Second with the second coming of Jesus. And this first coming is like a mustard seed, not a military coup. That's what threw everybody off. The mystery of the kingdom is where we live here with the kingdom already having come in partial fulfillment, but waiting to come in complete consummation. First, the king comes on a donkey with a branch of peace and amnesty for all the rebel subjects. And only later will he come on a great white horse with a sword of judgment in his hand. And so the consummation awaits and the blessings are here in part, but not in full measure. Wednesday night, we simply translated that message into another terminology. We said that the New Testament pictures all of history in two ages. There's this age with its sin and its sickness, and its death, and there's the age to come after the judgment with its life, and its wholeness, and its purity, and sinlessness. And according to the New Testament, the powers of the age to come have, as it were, broken into this age so that there is now an intersection or an overlapping of the age to come and this age. And we live in this overlapping time. We taste of the powers of the age to come 
But we groan awaiting the redemption of our bodies. Hebrews 6.5, Romans 8.23. The already and the not yet of the ages and the already and the not yet of the kingdom. That's the point so far in the message last week. And the question now to be raised this week is, how is the kingdom present? How is it present? What does his presence look like in the world? Now, that question needs to be carefully distinguished. There are really two questions in that question. And if we don't separate them, we can jump to conclusions that may not be biblical. The two questions that have to be distinguished are, how did the power of the kingdom manifest itself in the life of the king, Jesus, incarnate on the earth? And then secondly, how does the power of the kingdom manifest itself in our lives today? There are some who assume quickly and easily that they're the same or at least are intended to be exactly the same. And there are others who think that there's a distinction that should be drawn between the way the king demonstrated the kingdom and the way the subjects of the king demonstrate the kingdom. Let me illustrate why I think we have to make a distinction between the way the king demonstrated the kingdom and the way we do. Take the miracle at Cana when Jesus turned water into wine. John says in 2.11 of his gospel, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. When he changed water into wine, he was not merely giving a sign that he was a spirit-filled man that other spirit-filled people could copy. He was displaying his inimitable glory as the only son of the Father. When Jesus did signs, they were signs not merely of a spirit-filled human who had emptied himself of all deity. They were signs that he was of God, the Son, begotten of the Father, which I cannot imitate. Another illustration, and I have seven of these, but I'm only going to mention two, is the resurrection of Lazarus. When Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead... And he was talking with Martha. And he gave an explanation of what was about to happen. He did not say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And I am full and I feel a power coming over me. And by this power, which you can also have and copy, I will raise him from the dead. He did not say that. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Which I will never say nor dare you ever say when the kingdom demonstrates itself through you. Now, these illustrations are simply made for one point, and don't make them mean more than they mean. There will always be a difference 
between the way the Son demonstrates the kingdom of His Father and the way sons and daughters demonstrate the kingdom of the Father. In fact, I wonder if we should not at times glory in our inability to imitate Jesus. Glory in Jesus' absolute uniqueness in the world which we cannot be like. That His glory be lifted up and we dare not presume to demonstrate power in the same exact way that Jesus, the Son of glory, demonstrated power. I wonder if we would not honor the Son at times by saying He is the Son from the Father. We are sons by adoption groping our way to the Father. Ought there not for the glory of the Son to be a manifest difference in what we are able to do? I commend it to you for your consideration, but don't take it farther than it's intended, as you'll hear shortly. Now, what I want to do in the rest of our time is spell out eight ways that the kingdom is present. Eight ways that the kingdom has come and is present. And I'll tell you in advance, I believe that it is present today as well as in the life of Jesus in all eight ways. But it will remain for the weeks to come to ask, to what degree is it present today? And in what way should each of these eight things be manifest in their presence today? Number one. And each of them will be couched in the phrase, uh, the kingdom overcomes something and brings something. Each one will state it like that. Number one, the kingdom overcomes physical misery and brings healing. The kingdom overcomes physical healing and bring, I mean, overcomes physical misery and brings healing. For example, Luke 10, 8, Jesus sends out the 70 disciples and tells them this. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, Eat what is set before you, heal the sick, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. Now notice the connection. Heal the sick and say, the kingdom has come near you. It's come near you. When I heal you, the kingdom is near you. So when the kingdom breaks into this fallen, sick, sinful world, it begins to heal. That's the point. In fact, this is so tremendously important. It's right up there, right beside preaching, as the bread and butter, the meat and potatoes of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Listen to Matthew 4, 23, sum it up. He went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every infirmity among the peoples. Isn't that amazing? He was just going everywhere, healing every disease and every infirmity. Hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of people came under the word and touch of Jesus Christ and were healed in those days. And so I conclude, number one, that when the kingdom breaks into this sin-sick, 
fallen world of physical misery, it starts to heal people in power. Number two, when the kingdom comes, it overcomes death and brings resurrection. In Matthew 10, 7, Jesus says to those who are about to go out and preach, preach as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead. Part of the ministry, he said. When you go, heal the sick, raise the dead, say, the kingdom is here. Meaning again, when the kingdom breaks into this death-riddled world, it begins to shake up the powers that be, and there is resurrection. But now let's notice something here. This is really interesting. I commend it more as a question than something I have the last word on. Jesus healed Thousands, I presume. He raised three people from the dead that we know of. And the apostles in the book of Acts raised two people from the dead. Tabitha and Eutychus. Now here's my question. Why did he heal thousands and only raise three people from the dead? Why not thousands? I mean, there were plenty of graves. And within three years, he surely could have bumped into a thousand people who had died. Why not? Why only three people? Now, I think that's worth thinking about. I think it will guard us from hasty conclusions. Ultimately, it seems to me that it comes down to this. In the overlap of the ages with the age to come, with its power of life breaking into the age of sin and death and misery, the sovereign wisdom of God determines what and how many of the blessings of the age to come will be experienced in this age. He has sovereign control over how much of the future can become present. If he wills that healing be more common than resurrections, that's his business. It's his job. He's doing the work. And therefore, we should just look at Scripture and learn. If resurrections are to be rare and healing is to be common, fine, you are God. If you were to press me behind that and say, but, but why, why not more resurrections? Why not more Lazaruses and little... Boys of Nain and little girls. And it is interesting, isn't it, that he raised children whose parents were heartbroken and then one good friend. I would answer, I suspect the reason is that it is no great blessing to have to die twice. Especially if you die as a child or as a believer, like Lazarus, it is no great blessing to have to die twice. And therefore, he did not do it much because he loves people. Keep in mind, you know, it's easy to forget that all of the people Jesus healed and those whom he raised all got sick again and died. All of them without exception. Which means this, 
When the kingdom breaks into this sickness and sin and death-riddled age, it does not abolish sickness and death. Rather, the kingdom breaks in with signs that one day they will be abolished. That's the point of his healings. That's the point of the resurrections. Not that he was abolishing them. All sickness gone, all death gone, that awaits the age to come. The point of Jesus breaking in and healing and raising the dead is that that's the sort of God we have. That's the sort of age that's coming. That's the sort of news to spread. But don't expect it to change this age till he comes again. That's the point of the resurrection. That's why three measly people out of all the suffering and dying were raised in the life of Jesus when with a snap of his finger he could have raised every person in the tombs in Galilee. Because he's waiting. In fact, I was pondering this week the words in Matthew 7, the way is hard, leads to life, and few there be that find it. And the verb there, is hard, is the same word for tribulations in the noun. And I thought of Acts 14.22, where Paul told all new believers, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. In other words, as the ages overlap, and you begin to experience the down payments of this final inheritance, you must enter this kingdom down here, the full kingdom, by patient endurance of tribulation. That's the uniform teaching of the New Testament. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. Not coasting free of sickness and raised from the dead and escaping all financial problems Etc., etc., if you coast home free. That is not the New Testament teaching. Number three, the kingdom overcomes demonic oppression and brings deliverance. Luke eleven twenty, which was read by Dallas, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When the kingdom of God breaks into the world, demonic forces must back off. They must back off. When the kingdom moves in, demons move out. Now think about this for a minute. Have you ever read the Old Testament looking for demons or Satan? What do you find? You find Satan mentioned, I believe, in five of the 39 books. No place does a wise man, a king, a prophet, or a priest ever cast out a demon in the Old Testament. Now, the only reason I mention that is because it highlights the unprecedented, extraordinary events we read in the Gospels. Why? Why in the Gospels do you have Jesus everywhere he turns almost? Uh, Satan and devils are fleeing from him. Why does he begin his ministry in the wilderness with Satan trying to oppose him and he having to get victory through fasting over Satan? And the answer is that when the kingdom broke in in this unprecedented way, a new level of warfare is undertaken by the people of God. I believe Satan was sort of masked behind idolatry 
an international intrigue in the Old Testament so that Israel and the nations sort of correspond to Christians and demons. You read the Psalms and all the enemies happen to be described in terms of national enemies or people enemies. Whereas you move over into the New Testament, all of that is unmasked, as it were. And out from behind those natural enemies emerge demons and Satan. And so now, with the inbreaking of Jesus, they reveal themselves suddenly. And we realize what we're up against and a new authority. In fact, it says in uh, Matthew 10:1, Jesus called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. Now, we're going to take up in special messages in the future spiritual warfare and ask about what role should this have for us here at Bethlehem? And is that authority yours today as a child of God and as a disciple of Jesus Christ, the King? And I'm going to answer yes, you should have that authority. And yes, this week we should do spiritual warfare in prayer on behalf of the 58 who go and the 950 who stay. It's very clear that an unprecedented thing has happened in the world with the coming of Jesus Christ in terms of the overcoming of demonic power and oppression and the bringing of deliverance. Number four, the kingdom overcomes rebellion and brings conversion. Overcomes rebellion, brings conversion. Jesus made it very clear, nobody enters the kingdom except by conversion. For example, Matthew 18, 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn, the old version is right, King James to say, unless you be converted you will, and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't enter the kingdom unless you... You're going down in a proud way like this, self-reliant and self-dependent, thinking your own thoughts, depending on your own way. And it says, unless you turn and become like a child, trusting in your heavenly Father, you won't enter into heaven. You won't enter the kingdom. Now, my question is, where does the power come from to do this? Who, who creates that turning? Who brings that about? Who draws people into the kingdom? Let me give you some text to illustrate the answer that I believe is biblical. For example, the parable of the net. Matthew 13, 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net which is thrown into the sea and gathered fish. How do fish get saved? They don't jump into the net. In fact, they try to jump out of the net. That's what fish try to do. They try to jump out of the net. Fish by nature don't jump into nets, they jump out of nets. And so do we, by nature, jump out of the kingdom. And only by the net and power of God are we drawn into the kingdom. Or another illustration is uh, Matthew 13, 24, the parable of the wheat and tares. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed seed in his field. And then the interpretation is this. He who sows the seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. He's the seed sower. Who's the seed? He who sows the seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed means the sons of the kingdom. So in that parable, the son of man is sowing the sons of the kingdom. So where do sons of kingdom come from in the world? They come from Jesus. Jesus puts sons of the kingdom in the world. 
Jesus plants people. Jesus makes the kingdom. Jesus gathers the kingdom. Another illustration, this is the clearest one of all. The rich young ruler. He comes and he says, how can I have eternal life? Jesus says, give away your money and follow me. And he loves his money. Too much to do that. And so Jesus says, it's real hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom. And the disciples throw their hands up and say, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with men, it is impossible. It's impossible to get converted and be saved and come into the kingdom with men. Men can't do it. Men do not jump into the net. Men do not stop loving money on their own. Who then converts sinners? The rest of the sentence is, with men it is impossible, but nothing is impossible to God. God saves sinners. God converts proud people into humble, childlike people. The kingdom comes with converting power. The kingdom saves people. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. To you, it has been given by God to know the secrets of the kingdom. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon Barjona, but my Father who is in heaven has opened your eyes to see that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. You didn't do that. Nobody recognizes Jesus as the living Christ except by the kingdom power. Number five, the kingdom overcomes condemnation and brings forgiveness. Oh, here we move real close to the heart of the gospel of the kingdom, brothers and sisters. The kingdom overcomes condemnation and brings forgiveness. You know what the biggest obstacle in your life before you got saved was to the kingdom? The biggest obstacle? You might say, well, my pride, my unbelief. No, that was not the biggest obstacle. The biggest obstacle was God's wrath against you. The condemnation of God resting upon all unbelievers in their blindness. God hates sin and will cast out all sinners. So how in the world then can you be saved if God is against you? If God's just condemnation rests upon us, why was it then that the tax collectors and sinners entered into the kingdom before the chief priests and the elders. Why was it that the kingdom is like a man, a householder, who goes out at the end of the day and hires a man for one hour and pays him a whole day's wage? Why is it that the kingdom of heaven is like a king who gives a marriage feast for his son, and instead of inviting royalty, he goes out and beats the bushes and invites everybody, Jesus says, good and bad, into his kingdom banquet feast. And why did Jesus say, blessed are the poor in spirit who have nothing to offer to commend them to God? Why? And the answer is because the kingdom overcomes the condemnation of God and brings forgiveness. And that's stated crystal clear in Matthew 18 where it says, The kingdom of God is like 
a king who called his servants to an account. And one of them, with a $10 million debt, fell on his faith, beseeching him for mercy. And the king felt pity upon him and forgave him all his debt. That's the kingdom. The kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom is that the kingdom overcomes the condemnation of a just and holy God and brings forgiveness. Now, we on this side of the cross know how the king did it. But it was the king and the kingdom who did it. Number six, the kingdom overcomes wrongdoing and brings righteousness. It overcomes wrongdoing and brings righteousness. What do you pray when you pray the Lord's Prayer? Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Wherever the kingdom comes, the will of God is done the way the angels do it in heaven. The kingdom of God does not establish itself and all the while there's disobedience. Where the kingdom is, there's righteousness. That's why Jesus said, seek the kingdom and God's righteousness first. They are inseparable. When you seek the kingdom, you seek righteousness. When you seek righteousness, you seek the kingdom. The kingdom comes to overcome wrongdoing and establish justice and righteousness in lives and in groups and societies of people. Number seven, the kingdom overcomes sadness and brings joy. It overcomes sadness and brings joy. Now, I wouldn't need a text for that probably because you could just take all the last six texts and add them up and they would spell joy. Because if he brings life, if he brings healing, if he brings deliverance from Satan, if he brings conversion, if he brings forgiveness, if he brings righteousness, believe me, he brings joy. But let's make it explicit so we have biblical authority for the sentence. Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is joy. Isn't that a glorious statement? The kingdom of God is joy and peace with God. Or Jesus put it this way. Blessed, happy, joyful are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because yours is the kingdom of heaven, you can have joy. Where the kingdom reigns, you can have joy right in the midst of persecution. And now I close with number eight. The kingdom overcomes aimless futility and brings purposeful ministry. It overcomes aimless futility of life and brings purposeful ministry. Now, the reason I'm closing with this is because this sets the stage for the next segment of sermons and the next term of the Bethlehem Institute and Training Center. What we're going to take up in the messages that come is the ministry of kingdom people. Now, let me show you the text that I'm thinking about, and then we'll close. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6 says this. Jesus has made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Let me paraphrase that for you and apply it to us. When the kingdom comes, when its power is exerted, it creates not merely a institution called the church. It creates a priesthood. And Peter calls it a royal, kingly, 
priesthood. If you are in the kingdom, you are a priest. Do you know that? Is that part of your conscious self-understanding? I am a priest to God. If you can't say that, then either you don't understand the kingdom or you're not in the kingdom. Because everybody in the kingdom is part of the royal priesthood. And men and women and saved boys and girls are priests. And you know what priests are called to do? Minister. And you know how they minister? In two directions. Priests have this calling. Whatever you do for a living, this is your calling. You enter and draw near into the holy holies of God, bearing the burdens of people. And you come out drawing near to men, bearing the blessings of God. That's the priestly ministry. You bear the burdens of men up into the presence of God and deal with God for men. And then you bear blessings down from God to men and deal with God to men. That's priestly ministry. That's what we're going to preach about for the next eight or ten weeks. What will it look like when not the clergy, but the priests, the believers, discover that they are a kingdom. They are, you are, a royal priesthood, duty-bound by your kingdom presence to enter into God's presence for others and to enter into others' presence for God with power. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray earnestly, I pray with all my heart, that you would deal with your priests now as they bow. Oh God, deal with your priests. The men and women in this room who name your name. Who are in the kingdom. And who have perhaps not thought much about their priestly calling. Oh God, may we see the glory of the ministry of our priesthood. Oh, would there be an unleashing of power in the pew. Grant, O oh God, that this week 58 people would be born into your holy presence by 950 priests. And grant, O oh God, that all the working of this 950 here who are left to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in Minneapolis would be born into your presence by the 58 priests who go to California. And, oh God, when we are back together, may we enter into each other's presence bearing all the blessing of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.